You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. They filed out onto the narrow balcony. In the castle courtyard far below at the bottom of a vertiginous drop, a few hundred Florians had gathered. From this height, they looked unreal like dolls. Quentin waved. I wish we could do something more for them, he said. What do you want to do, Elliot said. We're the kings and queens of a magic utopia. Cheers drifted up from far below. Faintly, the sound was tinny and far away. It had the audio quality of a musical greeting card. Some progressive reforms? I want to help somebody with something. If I were a Felorian, I would depose me as an aristocratic parasite. When Quentin and the others took the thrones, they hadn't known exactly what to expect. The details of what was involved were vague. There would be some ceremonial duties, Quentin supposed, and presumably a lead role in policy making, some responsibility for the welfare of the nation they ruled, but the truth was that there just wasn't much actual work to do. And the weird thing was that Quentin missed it. He'd expected Fillory to be something like medieval England, because it looked like medieval England, at least on casual inspection. He figured he'd just use European history, to the extent that he remembered it, as a crib sheet. He would pursue the standard enlightened humanitarian program, nothing extraordinary, greatest hits only, and go down in history as a force for good. But Fillory wasn't England. For one thing, the population was tiny. There couldn't have been more than 10,000 humans in the whole country, plus that many talking animals and dwarves and spirits and giants and such. So he and the other monarchs, or tetrarchs, whatever, were more like small-town mares. For another, while magic was very real on Earth, Fillory was magical. There was a difference. Magic was part of the ecosystem. It was in the weather and the oceans and the soil which was wildly fertile. If you wanted your crops to fail, you had to work pretty hard at it. Fillory was a land of hyperabundance. Anything that needed making could be gotten from the dwarves sooner or later, and they weren't an oppressed industrial proletariat. They actually enjoyed making things, unless you were an actively despicable tyrant the way Martin Chatwin had been. There were just too many resources and too few people to create anything much in the way of civil strife. The only shortage that the Florian economy suffered from was a chronic shortage of shortages. Lev Grossman is the book critic for Time magazine. He's the author of the novels Warp, Codex, and The Magicians. His newest novel is The Magician King. Thank you for joining me, Lev. It's a pleasure. It's a real pleasure. Lev, this is a brilliant novel, and I think it is very... Uh, sly in what it is because this is one of the funniest novels I've read in a long time and it plays itself so straight but I think that this is a brilliant satire of the fantasy genre every step of the way. It's funny you would say that. I thought, I found it very funny. You always think about um, Kafka reading his works aloud in the salons and apparently he found his work so hilarious that he could barely, you know, he could just barely get it out because he thought it was so funny. And everybody else was thinking, oh, this is so, so dark, and, you know. Um, uh, but he found it funny, and I thought it was quite funny. <laughs> uh, I thought The Magician King was it's meant to be quite funny, apart from everything else. Well, one of the things I think that does that is I, good humor really the best, the strongest humor, the kind that stands the test of time because you could read this novel ten times in a row and still find every great line in there really funny, is that it takes the situation very seriously and sets up a kind of absurd perspective for the reader. Now, as you were creating um, this world, Fillory, and and you had created it before, uh, I think what you do here is strike a really wonderful prose style. So I'm wondering how early you got into that prose style. Uh, Well, the way I write prose... It's funny, when I read critics talking about my style, they never cite the people who I wish they would cite. You know, the, 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 the 
for me, writing prose begins with T.H. White and the once and future king. I think T.H. White is underrated in every way, but uh, one of those ways is, is as a stylist. And, you know, the other, um, uh, I, I read Waugh a lot just to pay attention to his style. It's very clear what Waugh does, very funny, uh, very clear, and, and just no wasted motion. And then, of course, Jonathan Franzen. I'm, uh, I think of his prose, especially, he writes the same kind of prose as me, namely third-person prose that is sort of closely focalized through a character, um, but not actually in the voice of that character. And uh, he does that better than anyone. Oh, and Neil Stevenson, the other one. The way Neil Stevenson's prose in Cryptonomicon, I mean, so limber and funny uh, um, and precise. Uh, you know, he does whatever he likes with words. Now, uh, this book begins to, to a degree where the magicians left off. So I want to warn our listeners, if you haven't read The Magicians, to turn off your podcast now, turn <laughs> off your recorder now, go read The Magicians, and you can listen to the earlier interview I did with Lev, and that'll give you an idea of what's going on without spoiling that book. But now we're in the world of The Magician King, where <clears throat> uh, your main character is now The Magician King. Talk about... Uh, the problems with a life of perfection. The idea for uh, The Magician King, not the idea for it, but what made it appealing to me uh, initially was playing again with this premise that C.S. Lewis created. You know, at the end of The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, uh, the Pevensies, of course, become the kings and queens of Narnia. And then uh, you don't see that, you don't see very much of that. They, they, they get to be kings and queens for about a page before they're booted back out into England and have to go back to grade school. Uh, and I thought, well, uh, wouldn't it be nice to just um, expand on that, get a real look uh, about at what it would be like to be the king of a uh, magical utopia, which is where most stories end. Most stories end where you become the king of your own magical land and that you live happily ever after. I want to look at that a little bit and, um, and see what it would feel like. And I think what it would feel like is you would get pretty restless after a couple of years of relentless luxury. Quentin is an un unusual character because here he is. He's the king of this magical utopia along with Elliot and Julia. I, and they, they've got, you know, things are really good for them. But what's interesting is the language that you apply to this magical utopia is very 20th century, very urbane, and very funny. And what happens, I think, throughout this novel is that you take all the basic premises of every fantasy novel that's pretty much ever been written, and you take them very seriously, and you put your characters in very serious situations. But when you apply your prose style, it's hilarious. <laughs> it's constantly one of the funniest things I've ever read because these you kind of undermine some of this. You don't undermine the seriousness of the situation, but the language gives us this really funny 20th century perspective on every single aspect of every single damn stupid fantasy with elves, <laughs> dwarves, and every other freaking thing running around the countryside. Well, I, you know, I absolutely, I refuse, uh, I love fantasy, and yet I refuse to write about it in the language of fantasy. I refuse to use those tropes that uh, are, are lying around. I want to write stories about fantasy, but using the language of, um, of what? Of, of, of you know, uh, of contemporary American uh, fiction. Uh, literary fiction, as opposed to, you know, this very English kind of rhetoric and sort of prosody that we associate with those things. So it's funny. It comes out um, sounding very different. And it's a joke I never get tired of to, um, to use that kind of language where you're not really expecting it. But my hope is also that it lets you see these familiar things, you know, freshly, um, as if uh, you hadn't seen them before, which is kind of the goal of all literary writing, really, to show you things freshly. Uh, by using a different kind of language to describe it. Well, now, one of the things that you get us right off the bat with is that you have this character there, and he's the king, and he talks about 
thinking he even sees himself as something of an aristocratic parasite. But the problem with this paradise is, is that it resists even uh, attempts to bring in any kind of reformation, any kind, it resists uh, enlightenment. It's, it's, it's sort of, it's trapped. It's this wonderful sort of wedding cake, you know, world that they live in. Um, it, uh, it sort of, it can't really evolve. And uh, it's a world of kind of hyperabundance. I mean, uh, Fillory, you know, like Narnia, it's not just a world with magic in it. It is a magical world. Um, and, uh, you know, Quentin fancies himself, uh, right, well, he'll just sort of go through European history and just do all the great reforms that were done, you know, because they probably haven't gotten here yet. But he's looking around for something to reform, and there's just a real shortage of problems in Fillory. <laughs> <laughs> not a lot of civic unrest or, um, you know, uh, burning policy issues. Now, uh one of the things that uh, so happens is is that um, in this novel, uh, Quentin decides that he's going to set out on a quest. And again, you undermine the whole fantasy vision of a quest because instead of this glorious quest for this distant object that will change the world, he goes out to collect some taxes from a backwater island. <laughs> I just wa I wanted to think about, you know, uh, Everybody loves a good quest story, but I wanted to think about, well, if it happened to me, what, what a quest look like, in, you know, in my life? And generally speaking, you know, uh, when I'm out in search of something, I often, I don't know what I'm looking for, you know, until uh, I'm well into the quest. Sometimes I don't know what I'm looking for until years after um, uh, I found it. So I want, you know, Quentin's quest, I wanted it to start as um, something very ordinary, and it only really slowly dawns on him that he's having an adventure and that he's on a quest. Um, in a funny way, I think about, you know, writing The Magicians. Uh, I started The Magicians in 1996, and then uh, I put it aside for eight years, and I sat around thinking, well, what should I do? What should I write? Um, uh, you know, what, what should my voice sound like? And of course, uh, I'd solved that quest. I had what I was looking for. It was sitting right in front of me on my hard drive, but I didn't recognize it until years afterwards. Uh, and I feel like uh, I, I wanted um, I wanted Quentin to you know to experience his quest that way, as opposed to jumping on a on a charger and, and riding out into the forest in search of the Grail. You have a lot of fun with pretty much every single aspect of fantasy out there, including the tournament. And you, one thing you do really well in this book is to create all the kind of set pieces of fantasy. <laughs> but again, you create them and undermine them. And that's a really, the fact that um, you're able to do that simultaneously is, I think, really crafty and requires a lot of skill. Did you find yourself having to write uh, maybe a straight tournament and then go, okay, now I've got to know what it looks like straight. Now I've got to kind of tweeze it back to the way it looks through to me. You're, you're, you're pretty close when you say that. It's a funny way of it's putting it, but of course it's, it's exactly right. Um, and it, it comes out of, I, I, you know, it comes out of love. It comes out of love for fantasy novels. And um, uh, there's, a, there's a particular scene where there's a tournament staged and I was getting sick of the fact that nobody had any had a sword in, in the magicians. I thought, God damn it, I'm a fantasy writer. There's no, and I, I have never written a sword fight. Well, that's got to end. Uh, but yes, e even as these, uh, you know, even as I sort of set up these set pieces, um, uh, <laughs> I'm sort of ruining them. You know, <laughs> I can't, I can't help myself. You know, the master of this, then the model for this, of course, is Watchmen by by Alan Moore. Mm -hmm. Who uh, and Dave Gibbons, who who you know created a superhero con uh, comic that just bang it hits every of one of the major tropes and cliches of, of superhero stories, and you know he just travesties them. Uh, he he just you know he makes everybody fat or an alcoholic or you know um, uh, sort of vaguely sort of psychotic or uh, or greedy. Um, and, uh, you know, he's undermining these tropes, and you're reading it, and you think, my God, it's never seemed so real to me. This is the greatest superhero story I've ever read. And it's because he deliberately set out to travesty the superhero um, genre. Uh, and as a result, he kind of he made it stronger. It, it's, just, it's just marvelous. That reading Watchmen was, um, uh, just destroyed me when I read it. It came out in the 80s. 
Well, you know, I think you do a very similar thing here with the fantasy genre. And I think it's really important what you said is that you love the genre and you respect it and you also clearly understand it. And I think all of those things have to be in place. They have to be firmly in place and they have to be thoroughly in place. You have to have thoroughly understand it. You have to really respect and love the traditions and know them in order to be able to do what you do to them, which is relentlessly make fun of them all the way through by subjecting them to the harsh light of 20th century characters who look and go, this is ridiculous. Well, one of the great things about writing fantasy is that you know that your readers are going to see this. Fantasy readers are such great scholars, you know. I mean, mm-hmm. they of the genre. I mean, of the genre. You you meet these people and, and they could just teach a course because you know they've read it all back to Hope Merely's and you know and beyond. Um, so you can just be really confident that people are, are are so fluent, you know, in this kind of in this genre and in this uh, kind of um, you know way of telling stories that, uh, you know, any, every, every move you make, they will spot, you know, and it's, uh, it's a very fun kind of dance you do with the reader. Well, this is a very dense book, too. I mean, I found something amusing, some prose, read aloud pro piece of prose or sentence or joke, three, four, five on pretty much every single page of the book. It's very dense in that manner. And one of the things you do, too, is to point out <clears throat> aspects of the fantasy genre that even I hadn't thought of. For example, at one point you you referenced Dr. Seuss, and I thought, wow, that really was my first experience of the fantasy genre, and that really, that was more, I still love the fantasy aspects of that. I mean, the illustrations and the worlds he created were really coherent and very real. I, I love to, uh, the, the great thing about having kids is you get to go back through those books, um, and I, I'm always reading Dr. Seuss to, um, my daughters are now at this point, they read them to themselves, um, but you just look at, the fr- his, at his frames, you know, not at the middle of the frame, but there's always something going on right in the, in the corner, you know, some little island or, or crag with a sort of weird truffula kind of tree sticking on it, and you think, God, what's it like over there? You know, it's so ominous and weird. It's so evocative. Um, you could just get lost in those landscapes. Speaking of lost in the landscapes, we have a, we have a map with this book, the traditional fantasy map. Mm. Um, did you create this yourself, and how much of this world and this quest did you have to map out in advance? I mean, how much of this is in Excel spreadsheets <laughs> and you know database uh, applications and you know uh, Google Inventamap? Uh, well, you know, one of the one of the great things about being a fantasy writer is, you know, you can just um, uh, you can you can play with distance um, pr- pr- pretty easily. Um, it's not it's not a cartographically um, especially uh, rigorous book, nor is it an especially rigorous map. Um, so you're always, you know, oh, it's a day's sail, it's two days sail. <laughs> <laughs> here and there. Oh, they sailed for a week in the other direction. Um, they more or less are moving back, back and forth, moving back and forth along a sort of east-west line. Um, so uh, you know, it wasn't one of these wonderful sort of wiggly maps like um, uh, Earthsea, for example. You know, the Earthsea map, mm-hmm. uh, which is just this, just worlds, world-spanning archipelago uh, of little islands. Um, it's a lot of open ocean in this one. Well, it gives you a lot of room to work with. Yeah. Now, <laughs> I, I love all your characters, too, you know, especially once you get out beyond the main quartet. Um, so uh, talk about creating, you know, people like Bingle and uh, uh, Benedict, who <clears throat> are just really wonderful and memorable characters. Well, Bingle is sort of, um, he's a little, he's a, he's, he started as kind of a goof on, on, um, some of the sort of cursed fantasy characters of the of the mid twentieth century, your Elric or your, um, or especially your your Grey Mouser, um, who mm, fr- right, right, Fritz Lieber is, is sort of one of the one of my all time sort of major writers. Uh, so I thought, well, let's have a let's have a sort of a doomed swordsman, but think about how a little bit how sort of sort of a little bit ridiculous and sort of overly self serious, you know. All these 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 mopey swordsmen would would actually be if you had to hang on a on a boat with them, um, and you know Benedict is just a it's just an adolescent. I don't think you see a lot of really well drawn adolescents in um, in uh, in fantasy literature. You know, 
the kind that you, you would see drawing in their math notebook, you know, in the back of the class. Uh, no, the, you're, no, you're right, and that's, that's interesting. That's, I think, why he stood out so much for me, because I really, once you, even though you've got him set up in this fantasy reality, he's a character type that we recognize, again, from our reality. You've imported him, managed to import the character whole, yet place him in nicely within the, the confines of the fantasy world. I remember reading Michael Moorcock and... Uh, it's either a Hawk Moon or an Elric novel, and it's just a throwaway detail. But you know, one of the, this, this sort of teenage sort of soldier, Elric's walking by, and the kid has acne. And I thought, wow, I've never seen anybody have acne in a fantasy novel before. <laughs> and I suddenly realized, wow, those teenagers are the same teenagers you know who I see on the school bus every day. They're just those kids. Um, and it made me think, wow, I should do a proper a proper teenager in a book someday. And then lo and behold. <laughs> and you have Benedict. Here comes Benedict. Now, uh, you also point out, and this is, I think, really interesting, is that uh, the, the landscape of all fantasy is essentially the English countryside. Anything else, forget it. It's all the English countryside. And I thought that was an interesting observation. It's, you know, you might think uh, it was something else, but that's really pretty much it. Yeah, well, I don't, you know, I don't want to throw out, you know, the early Americans like Robert E. Howard, um, the Conan books and things like that. But, yeah, so much of it comes out of, you know, really these two guys, right, Tolkien and, uh, and Lewis in, in, in Oxfordshire. Uh, and, um, you know, the, uh, looking at the Cotswolds, I don't know if you've ever been to that part of the world. Um, my mother's English, so I, I get over to England every once in a while. We went to Wales, and it was so, it was so beautiful. It it's astounding. I, um, I, I didn't, I, I, you know, other, living in America, you wouldn't believe places like that are real, oh, you know? Oh, no. But they're just, they're so, uh, just so stunning. And you, even you, as an American, feel that longing that, that Lewis and, and, uh, and, and, and Tolkien and, and uh, all those guys felt for the primeval English countryside, for these great hedges. Um, I was dragging my daughter, who's seven, around the English countryside this, this summer and saying, look at the hedgerows, sweetie. Look at those amazing hedgerows. She could not, of course, have been more bored. But <laughs> I felt that primeval longing for the English countryside. I felt primeval terror because I was being driven at 50 miles an hour past hedges on the wrong side of the road <laughs> through blind curves. And oh, thought, yeah. oh, my God, how can you do that? And, you know, of course... Um, Lewis and, and, and Tolkien, you know, were of the generation that really began to see that, that countryside being ruined in a way that humanity, really, the humanity really learned how to ruin a countryside, you know, in that period. You know, they saw the electrification of cities. They saw the invention of the automobile. They saw mechanized warfare. I mean, they, they saw the world change just as radically as, as we see it changing now and created this great sadness in them. Now, uh... You, you have a, uh, one of the things that's very nice about this is that Villery is set up as part of this kind of multiverse. And so you mentioned Elric, so I'm thinking that's... <laughs> I, and it's interesting how the, the fantasy genre and some of these basic tropes now all of a sudden are cropping up in quantum physics, so you can really do a lot of uh, science fiction hand-waving. And you do a little bit of that in here, don't you? Well, a little bit. It's funny. I have a real, I have a real science fiction background. One of my favorite works of fantasy is is, is um, Larry Niven's Little Red science uh, fantasy series, The Warlock Stories. Niven, of course, being one of the great hard science fiction writers, and no mean physicist himself. And I, you know, when I when I try to write about 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 you know the universe of of Fillory and the multiverse. Uh, I try not to keep it too. I try not. I try not to, not to let it get too mystical. Mm. You know? No, it seems very. That's one of the things I think that makes your jokes work because the once you get over there, even though if there's magic, magic has a pretty much of a precision to it, and that plays a part in the other thread of the story, which we need to get to. Right. But right. Um, everything you know seems pretty grounded, and that's what I think makes all your jokes work. And, and I just want to get back a little bit to the prose writing and the jokes. When, when you wrote this out, did, as a writer, do those jokes just come 
flowing off the tip of your pen or do you kind of go back and, and you know, explore, create the scenes and then uh, uh, tart up the prose? <laughs> <laughs> I put rouge on it. And, put rouge and, on it. Little beauty marks. <laughs> it's 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 pretty much that second one. Um, I feel like uh, my my early my initial drafts tend to be really just plodding and quite earnest. You know, not very funny at all. And then you know you read back through it and you start reacting to it, right? And um, oh, how interesting! So so you uh, you take uh, you 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 satirize your own work. That's a that's I never th- would have put it that way, but you're absolutely right. Uh, well, you call yourself out right, on your own bullshit, right? You go, you go, you go through, and 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 you think, well, that's obviously just incredibly fake. And so you have a character look around and say, wow, that's the fakest thing I've ever seen, or I can't believe you said that, or whatever, because you have you know you have them react to what's going on, um, the way the the, the reader is reacting. Um, but it takes many passes to sort of get that effect. Well. As as uh, Quentin goes on his quest, it starts out rather with a you know rather mundane kind of thing. But you also bring in uh, you have a fantasy novel within the fantasy story within the fantasy story, a kind of a, a Nautilus shell effect in there. And I think that's something that's it's well wrought in this book. It has serious consequences as it plays out again across the plot. And I think it, it's uh, an honored part of the fantasy tradition, and you do it well. You do that. You handle well in a more serious mode. I think, tipping your hat to the effect that fantasy literature has on us as a child and as an adult. I, I really, I, I, I love that effect when I see it in, in, in other work, um, and it, it's something. I, I think consciously, anyway, I was reacting to the Harry Potter books, um, which I, I love. But they are um, some. They only have one. They've only got one floor, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, it's like a giant ranch house or something. Um, there's no. There's no attic and there's no basement. When you, no one in Harry Potter has ever uh, has ever read a novel. I don't know if there are any novels in the Harry Potter world. No one reads fiction, so you never have. You never get that. You never get to another chamber of the Nautilus. You never get to take the stairs down to a lower level. Uh, and I was, I've always loved those books within books. Um, and I always thought, of course, that the characters in Harry Potter should be fantasy fans. I, 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 I want to get... reference Harry Potter in this book more than once. I would like to get Hermione Granger alone and make her admit to me that she's read the Narnia books about 90,000 times, even though she never talks about it. <laughs> you know, I know that that's going through her head. And uh, I wanted to bring it out, you know, in, in, in these books. Well, also, you, I have to mention there is a fabulous Star Trek reference in here. Just one. <laughs> I showed great restraint in having only one, only one Star Trek joke. Now, uh, as much as this novel takes place in the wonderfully invented world of Fillory, which you have a lot of fun with, um, a lot of it takes place in this world, too. And you give us uh, the backstory of one of the main characters, Julia, and talk about uh, creating this kind of back and forth structure just in terms of the architecture of the novel when you started writing the, you know, when you put yourself in that pretty utopia and said, oh my God, this is, I'm going to be bored blankless after two months of this stuff. <laughs> did you uh, talk, did you also decide to, was that when you decided to go back and uh, bring bring us up to date on Julia? Decided would, would probably be overly glorifying it. Um, I mean, I, I knew that I had a problem um, because uh, I, I thought a friend of mine, Laura Miller, who read a great book about the Narnia books um, called The Magician's Book, uh, points out that, you know, there's very little, very little of the chronicles are set in peacetime Narnia. You, very, you don't often get to see Narnia, just uh, people just having a good time in Narnia. And initially I thought, well, that's, you know, that's not fair. We should, we should show everybody enjoying Fillory. And, of course, that gets really dull very fast, you know. I mean, you can't make a novel out of people being happy in, in a magical, in another, in a magical other world. Um, so I knew immediately that I had to, you know, there, we had to get people back to Earth and um, have that, again, that tension of the, of the magical, the magic they do and the mundanity of the world around them. Uh, and, you know, at the same time, uh, the whole, there's a, the whole, the, the, B, the B plot, as it were, the second plot, um, about Julia, you know, began to emerge. I knew that, that something had happened to her in The Magicians. Um, and 
it's not answered in that book how even though she didn't get it to go to break bills she becomes uh, a magician herself um, I knew that story uh, I did myself a huge favor by leaving that story around untold so I would have something to talk about um, in the third book uh, sorry in the second book but I, I didn't. I didn't. I didn't realize that it was going to take on that structure. I was going to give Julie about twenty pages so she could just you know, clear up that plot hole for us. You know. Oh, but, I'm glad you did. That well, was a wonderful story. It wasn't my idea. It was Julia's. Honestly, <laughs> she was so full of anger and and bitterness and sadness. You know, she had this whole terrible story to tell, and she just. Um, it's a, one of those cliches that writers have of, of talking as if their characters, you know, had their had minds of their own, but. It's as close as I've ever seen to a character doing that. She just put up her hand and said, sorry, I'm not done after one chapter. Um, I have a story to tell, too, and it's as important as Quentin's. Um, and thank God for Julia. She turned out to be right, and this whole funny sort of duet kind of uh, echoing, weaving structure uh, came out of that. You know, th this uh, gets to a, a really wonderful vision of our world because um, you, you have a kind of a flip in this novel, back and forth. We're in a world of total fantasy where magic is the everyday and your perspective is very mundane. And then in our world, uh, where everything is very mundane, <laughs> you, you find all this wonderful magic which has these, all these different kind of, uh, you know, different roots. And, and one, I love the idea of this kind of geocaching uh, computer uh, antisocial network. <laughs> Yeah, that's that. Yeah, that was quite fun, and came out of my, you know, my years um, on Echo, which was a New York-based um, online community, mm -hmm. strictly, you know, Unix shell uh, command line stuff, and uh, uh, quite easy to, to draw on that and 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 make that up. Um, and I, it's just, it's, it's sort of it's 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 quite always very fun to have a sort of a secret society that's very exclusive. Um, that's a lesson I learned from Donna Tart and uh, the secret history, how compelling that is. And uh, uh, it's always, it was one of those things where you think of it and you think, oh yes, we're going to do this. This is going to be, it's going to be quite fun. Well, as a reader, it, it, it really is fun to experience and explore this world you create within our world and to see the two worlds kind of, uh, the threads kind of slowly weave together. As a writer, how much of this did you know was happening in advance and how much was just happening to you as you're writing? Were you writing the two threads at once? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Writing them, you know, writing them, uh, writing them at once. I mean, just... As we read them to, to a degree. To a degree. I, I, I shuffled around, as one does, I shuffled around the chapter breaks um, some uh, because there's sort of nice little sort of echoey bits back and forth. Um, uh, where one, you know, one character will suffer a terrible reversal, and the other one will sort of um, the opposite kind of thing will happen to them, and you'll see them sort of weirdly playing off each other. Um, that part was uh, was very enjoyable. I also I, I loved the fact that um, it was very important to me that that it was possible to do magic outside of breakbills, and that people did it. Um, the whole this whole sort of uh, the whole aristocratic nature of the sort of divide between muggles and wizards in Harry Potter. It just seems so English, you know? It's, it's so aristocratic. Very classist. Very classist, exactly. And I thought, well, that's, that's positively un-American. Yeah. <laughs> you know, uh, this great country of ours, anybody can do magic and ruin their lives doing it. Um, you know, it just, it, just uh, it seemed important to me that, that you'd have these pockets of, um, of, of the sort of seedy you know, uh, magical subculture almost going on in like punk clubs and crack houses and things. One of the things that you do too is to kind of uh, these uh, undermine reality itself. Once these, once you start digging at this magic, um, once we accept that into the book, all of a sudden our own world becomes kind of more like Fillory than we as readers are necessarily happy about. And, and so we can, um, I think, one of the things that as a reader you can sit there and almost make fun of your own mundane concerns because out there there are, are all sorts of gnarly things waiting to just come in and do make all sorts of really 
awful mischief. Yeah, it's funny. Um, I don't know if you've ever uh, interviewed Ursula Le Guin. Um, I've never had the pleasure of speaking with her. I'd love to. I've uh, I've only met her in person once. Uh, you know, one of the just in terms of raw intelligence, one of just the most dauntingly smart people I've ever met. And you know, um, I've interviewed Steve Jobs and Bill Gates. I, I, you know, I wouldn't I, uh, I I wouldn't bet I wouldn't bet against Ursula. Um, you know, if if it ever came to a match of wits, uh, she's remarkable. And she read The Magicians. Um, and talked about, um, uh, wrote me, you know, obviously the one of these incredibly just stunning emails where she talks about breaking down the opposition, uh, the way the opposition between the magical world and the real world breaks down, and uh, the real world gets increasingly more magical, and um, uh, the magical world gets increasingly more mundane. So that that sort of real world Narnia opposition that, that Lewis set up gets kind of deconstructed mm-hmm. in a funny way, if I'm using that word correctly. Now, uh, <clears throat> I really like, too, your sense of the, of, you know, what happens to the characters, because they all, every character gets kind of affected by this com- weird combination of their con- the strength of their connection to the magic world and where they, which world they happen to be in. So we meet people in in this world who who do well in the magic world, and people in the magic world who kind of, you know, would do better <laughs> over here. And and so talk about just uh, creating your characters in in terms of the worlds they inhabit and and the um, their character traits and how the one influences the other. One of the things that I wanted to I, I wanted to do, and I, had, I felt I had left undone in um, in the magicians, was I, I wanted to have I wanted to have a happy wizard. I wanted to have a happy magician. Everyone was so tormented and angsty in uh, the magicians, and I was I started to wonder: Do you have to be that way to be a magician? Would it be possible to be a a, a reasonable, emotionally robust person and and do magic? Uh, and that's where that character of Poppy comes from, um, because I just thought, uh, you know, to be in that world, do you have to be that screwed up? Um, and I decided, no, there must be, there must, it must be possible um, to uh, to have somebody, you know, who just was, uh, was quite pleased about being able to do magic and um, uh, enjoyed enjoying herself immensely. You know, and, and you know, as you mentioned that, it makes me realize too how much your science fiction roots come out, and I think really strengthen the book uh, a, a lot because your magic seems organized. It it seems to work, be consistent with itself. It doesn't seem like the kind of quote magic where oh, I need something, <laughs> I need something to happen to make my plot work. Right. <laughs> the magic actually sometimes seems to work you know against the plot it, it, in a in a nice way it, it comes up against the plot and i'm wondering how much you because you have complete control over that aspect of it how much you had to say okay i'm going to give myself a little break here maybe the magic isn't quite so rigorous over here or did you ever yeah. or did you just like go <laughs> buzz saw your own self with magic you know it's this is something that I think is sort of happening to fantasy or a certain strain of fantasy is mm-hmm. that, you know, people getting quite rigorous and organized about their magic systems. I don't take it to quite the extreme as someone like um, Patrick Rothfuss, who has, you know, really, I don't know if you've read um, uh, Name of the Wind, mm-hmm. uh, the Kingkiller Chronicles. Um, he, uh, you know, he's really worked it out, and he sits down and explains it to you. I don't take it that quite, quite that far, but I remember reading Robert Jordan, a writer who um, uh, gets an even worse rap with critics than I do, and uh, you know, him talking about how his hero, uh, Rand, was, was, doing, was doing magic, and he was, I think he was, um, you know, he was uh, extinguishing a fire or something, and uh, he said, right, well, you know, I, the uh, heat that's in the fire, um, I don't just snuff it out. It has to go somewhere. You have to, you know, ther- thermodynamics have to hold. Um, so I just, I took the heat from the fire and put it in that, that big marble mantelpiece over there, which got slightly warmer. And I, I remember just sitting up and thinking, oh, my God, 
that's you can, <laughs> you can have magic, but have magic be subordinate to the laws of thermodynamics. I thought, how fascinating. That's and a good idea. I, yeah. it, 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 that magic seemed so real to me when he said it that way that I suddenly thought, yes, that probably is how magic works. You know, when you're writing in a series like this, you have to remember what you're going to do and, and think about, remember what you've done and think about what you're going to do. I'm hoping there's going to be another book uh, following these characters. Am I correct in that assumption? Well, I, I expect so. I expect so. Uh, I, I can't say, oh, yes, well, you know, Viking has ordered up another one of these, and, you know, I've got a contract. But... Uh, well, they better. Well, I, I, I'm, I'm going to write it, and uh, if Viking doesn't publish it, everyone can just come over to my house and look at it on my laptop. <laughs> <laughs> I think at that, by, you know, by the time... Uh, uh, it's finished, which even if it, that's just a year from now, which I hope is the case, uh, the publishing landscape may have changed uh, so uh, enormously and titanically that you may just be publishing it in PDF form and sending it out to millions of people on their iPads and making way more money than you could possibly have made out of uh, Viking while Viking sits there and uh, <laughs> tries to figure out what they're going to do with the latest Danielle Steele novel. Yeah, it, the landscape is just shifting so rapidly. I mean, you see, you know, ebook sales are up sort of what, like a hundred and seventy percent over the first quarter of this of this year. Really, I didn't I mean, know that. The, the the numbers are just crazy. You know, it's, we're, we've left the world of in, incremental change behind, and just the pendulum is swinging wildly. It's very weird, and I'm I'm very sort of hidebound and, and risk averse. Uh, uh, it would be a big leap to. Um, to take on one of these more radical uh, publishing approaches, but people make them make them work. Cory Doctorow, people like that. Yeah, actually, I just talked with uh, Tad Williams, who who found out that he that his publisher didn't didn't care in the least bit about his uh, the e rights to his back catalog. Wow! <laughs> so he he owns all this stuff, and they're saying, "Well, we'll publish it for you electronically for like give you twenty five percent." Why would he? Why would he bother to right. do that? I've got a competing offer from myself <laughs> yeah. for a hundred percent of the profits. <laughs> uh, you know, you're a, a critic uh, uh, for Time Magazine, and, and that's a very you know, that's in the center of the cultural mainstream, maybe pulling a bit to the right, actually, as far as yeah. anything goes. And what you've written is fairly outre. Um, <laughs> and I'm wondering if, as a, as a critic, you know, as a member of this guy, you know, a guiding light, you're out there reviewing books for time. And I think you, your selections, I think, are um, perhaps a little bit more daring than maybe your minders might prefer. But... Um, I'm wondering if you feel any kind of tension there, or uh, how you, you know, how you perceive yourself from the, some kind of uh, third-person auctorial point of view. You know, Lev Grossman <laughs> sent his book in to be reviewed by Time Magazine and was hoping that Lev Grossman would review it. What would Lev Grossman say about such a book? Um, one of the weird, the weird things I find about my own books is that they're slightly less. They're, they seem very outré and weird to me. Um, uh, but, uh, I mean, it's horrible to say this, but, you know, they turn up on the Times bestseller list, which I find so odd. I, I feel like a weird avant-garde, you know, writer. And uh, um, uh, I guess I just, I'd like to make sure that, 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 that the books are quite fun. And, um, this book is a blast. He, it's, it's a, it's, you know what, the other thing I, I was just thinking about this is this book is like the scream of of fantasy novels. Uh -huh. it, it, everybody's in here, they hit every single fantasy cliche. They know it, and as they walk into it, they're really self-aware. And this is, I think, you know, uh, you know you're know, you a part of a larger movement of literature that's self-aware. I mean, to the degree that Franzen's characters are aware of, you know, are probably reading, you know, kitchen window epiphany novels themselves while they're having their own kitchen window epiphany. <laughs> Yeah, no, um, there's there's a lot of lot of chambers to the to the Nautilus, um, uh, but just to get back for a second to to my my position as a writer about books in a decidedly centrist publication. Um, well, there is there is a little feeling of you know um, you know I'm on the inside of the system. You know how much can I screw it up? Uh, <laughs> uh, and so I you know I've been very pointed about about 
pulling in a lot of genre fiction to time that wouldn't the magazine wouldn't ordinarily review and sort of putting out my hand and saying George R. R. Martin you know what he does the the way that he's transforming the uh, great fantasy traditions of the 20th century is really radical and interesting and you know let's all stop for a second and and look that and look at this and notice that it's important um, in, you know, much the same way as, as, as Jennifer Egan or Jonathan Franz and what they do is, is important and radical as well. Well, actually, after our, when I talked with Jennifer Egan, I told her I thought that her novel should be uh, Get a Hugo, foolishly forgetting that <laughs> <laughs> the Hugo fan base is, I mean, you know, they're the people who are going to the convention, so. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I've just come from the World Fantasy Convention. And where you won the John W. Campbell Award. Congratulations. <laughs> that was Larry. honestly not meant as a, tra- <laughs> as a transition. No, no, but it's, you know, I meant to mention this. This is a, this is a big deal. Campbell is a, is a classic in the field, and that's a, that's a big award for, for, the, for the, that's for the magicians, correct? Right, right. That would be for the magicians. This, this came out, um, well, only a week, a week before the, the Campbell thing. I guess voting was over. So, yeah, for the magicians. Well, that was the you know, greatest moment in my writing career. I mean, it was just... I imagine so. Well, you know, it, it's... I, one of the things that I think uh, these awards do do is draw attention where it needs to be drawn. And I think that that's the, the big function of awards is that they lift, you know, shine a light on stuff that might not otherwise be seen. Yeah, no, it's it's um, it's wonderful that, that people do things. And on one on the one hand, I sit and look at the other people who are up for it, like Lauren Bucus, who wrote um, Zoo City, and think, wow, I'm actually not a better writer than Lauren. Lauren is uh, at least as good a writer as me. Um, and then I get very sort of angsty about, oh, maybe I shouldn't even have this award. Maybe I should give it back. But you know, I'm just I'm just gonna go with it. Um, it's you know, it's 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 been a wonderful thing for me. And uh, yeah, everyone, you know, all the writers sort of up for it, uh, get, a, get a little extra attention, and God knows they deserve it. I'm, you know, this book is a fantasy, which is your, both your, these, uh, The Magicians and The Magician, Magician King are fantasies, and that's a, a genre that's currently outselling science fiction pretty significantly. But I think one of the things that your, both your books do is bring a lot, they bring the pleasures the rigorous pleasures of science fiction to fantasy, and I think it kind of um, makes it even more enjoyable because we we get the the goofy fantasy stuff, we get the talking animals, <laughs> but, but but they're 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 you know kind of more rigorously uh, conceived. So talk about talking animals. I I love your sloth. I, every time that sloth comes up, I'm just right there with him. You can really see him, and he's you know as a character, he's really strong. I, I hasten to point out that he's a lady sloth. He's okay. a girl sloth. Girl sloth. We only find that out towards the end. Um, I sort of hedge the genre, uh, the gender rather. Well, that's a Freudian slip. He, <laughs> I hedge the sloth's uh, gender and genre um, for a long time. Um, I take talking animals very seriously. Um, I think, uh, you know, it's one of the things that I, that I, as much as I love C.S. Lewis, I want to take him to task for. Because all of his animals, their personalities are like, Humans, they just talk like humans. Whereas, you know, an animal, if it could talk, uh, would have very different preoccupations, um, and uh, it's their their minds would work very differently from humans. They'd be much more alien, I think, than we than we than we realize. Uh, so, if you know, if if I'm going to have a sloth, um, I want to think seriously before I let it say anything. You know, what's it like to hang from a tree all the time and barely ever touch the ground and um, think in these sort of slow-moving cycles? Uh, and, you know, really try to build up its psychology from there. There's something that you have. He only really gets a page of the Tarasque? Kind of. Oh, yeah, right. I, the, I love that guy. The Tarasque. That's not made up. The Tarasque is real, of course. Uh, is it? Oh, yeah, I could never, I could never make anything that weird up. Um, I, I, I remember reading about it and thinking, that's the lamest dragon I've ever seen. And who but the French could come up with a dragon that, that was that pathetic? So I made him sort of a, sort of a sad sack, really. Now uh, you, you play with dragons in this book too, and I'm mm. wondering if if you're going to, if we're going to see more of them. I, I love our our scene with the dragon, and you do a great job with that. That the the dragon was meant to premiere in um, the magicians. Really, that scene was, was was transplanted from the magicians, and you can see if you look at the magicians. I actually did a little work setting up, you know, the arrival of the dragon. Then, of course, the dragon never arrives because um, 
frankly, it didn't really fit into the plot very well. But I had this dragon, and I thought, I've, I've, well, I've got to use him, you know, because <laughs> I spent a lot of time <clears throat> sort of putting him together. So, uh, yeah, I was very happy that, that we could get the dragons into, into this book. Um, I think they're sort of a nice, a, a very nice feature of, of uh, you know, uh, the secret magical landscape of Earth. And again, it's like having a sword fight. What kind of a fantasy writer are you if you haven't had a sword fight in a dragon in your books? Now, while official schools don't exactly matter in this, because your last book really covered that to the degree, and, and as you created the magic university, as it were, of break bills, um, you do um, think about school. And I, I think it's very interesting because, you know, you talk about how you know school matters it 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 helps and and what's interesting is that the people who whom it helps and the way it helps them they tend to not get it yeah it was well say more about that that's interesting well uh there's a, a scene where uh quentin uh quentin and, and julia are talking let me see if i can find that in my note here where he, she says you know um uh that something along the lines of uh where is this? Oh, I put this in here. Uh, I thought I did. That, uh, you know, you should have learned, and, and he, he says, I should have learned. It's, you know, that he reflects that he missed it, and she, sa- she says, you really did. Yeah, yeah. It's true. It's true. I, you know, I thought, well, I, th- I think a lot about education. Um, which sounds like a very boring thing to say, but I've had a very weird education myself. Because I, I went to Harvard as an undergrad, and then I spent some years at Yale, um, <clears throat> and uh, you know you, you notice a lot what you learn and what you don't learn in places like that. Mm. And uh, uh, you know one of the things that you do learn at somewhere like Harvard is that Harvard it's really not a very special place. And then you go out, and uh, you know the people there there's some there are some very smart people, and then there's some you know really dull people. Um, and you go outside and you meet people who are, uh, uh, you go out into the world and you meet people who are just absolutely brilliant. I mean, you meet really, really um, people doing, you know, working in service industries and things like that who are just absolutely so sharp and, inter- and interesting. And you just start to think about different things that you learn and what you do learn and what you don't learn, you know, inside the ivory walls of a place like Harvard or a place like, a place like Break bills. It's very humbling, really, to come out of Harvard and think, "Wow, I am really not that special." You're certainly special enough to appreciate the special qualities of a movie that I kind of liked called *The Craft*. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I suppose I, I wasn't. I, I, <laughs> I wasn't overwhelmed by it, but I seem to. I still think back and think, "Well, you know, that wasn't that bad, was it?" It's Firuza Balk, if I'm saying her name correctly, yeah. who really. Stole that movie for me. I know she wasn't the heroine, but uh, uh, she was kind of magnificent in it. Yeah. Um, and you, you never forget that character that she played. So I've been speaking with Lev Grossman. His new book is The Magician King. Thank you for joining me, Lev. It's been a real pleasure. A real pleasure. You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony.